Welcome to Prima's 2021 podcast series. My name is Shonda Ragland. I am the Director of Education at Prima. On this Prima podcast, Stephen Clark will discuss injury prevention programs and early symptoms intervention. Stephen is the Work Strategies National Director at Select Medical. We will also be joined by Prima's Education Coordinator, Taekwon Gilbert. Taekwon will moderate the discussion. Enjoy the podcast. Thank you for joining us today, Stephen. Well, first of all, thank you for having me. I really appreciate the opportunity to speak to the audience and kind of discuss some opportunities out there from an employer aspect of what we look for in injury prevention programs. And really the topic of today's discussion is about employee directives or strategies that different employers use and implement in order to help decrease their overall injuries. Just wanted to kind of look at, you know, some of the primary drivers and many employers are pretty well versed in exactly what we see from either a workers' comp perspective or OSHA recordability perspective of what we're looking at when it comes to workplace injuries. The country has been fairly stable. We're still running about, you know, looking at, you know, the number of recordable cases a year and approaching 3 million cases a year. And the primary injuries that we look at as recordable injuries are being sprains and strains and tears. You know, some of those times we refer to those as our ergonomic type injuries. You know, our strained backs, our sprains and strains of knees and, and ankles and wrists and shoulders and so forth really do result in a large amount of money that we're spending over, you know, 30% of what we're looking at in a country of towards these types of claims. With the last ergonomic impact study was looked at by Liberty Mutual approaching $60 billion a year. And a lot of those costs are even driven down specifically to the types of injuries. So when we're looking at strain sprain types of injuries, you know, there's reports through OSHA and other types of literature out there that can show direct medical cost in excess of $30,000 for some of those. And the ones that we really focus on, a lot of those economic drivers are the, the indirect costs that are associated also with those claims, you know, from lost time, lost productivity, legal uh, matters and situations become very, very costly to the employer when it comes to those types of areas. And that's kind of what we're trying to drive down. So when we kind of look at an equation out there, when we're looking at comp claims or we're looking at injuries in the workplace, the two primary drivers or factors we look for is first frequency, how many injuries um, are actually occurring in the workplace. And the second part of that is, you know, claims costs. You know, when we start looking at medical plus indemnity, and like I mentioned before, those direct costs as well as those indirect costs that are coupled onto that really do make for a sizable barrier and difficulties in this time and age when so much is being focused on, you know, whether it's supply chain or, you know, getting custom products to customers and providing service to customers. These do contribute to issues that employers have being successful year over year. So from a continuum standpoint, or when we start to look at it from a prevention standpoint, there's two different methodologies that we can focus on. One being injury management, which is your workers' comp field. That's where, you know, post-injury occurs. So we've had an injury and we have to deal with it from a medical aspect and everything that goes into that and the cost in there. And then there's a true injury prevention model. So in other words, having strategies in place to prevent those injuries from occurring. So I'm not going to talk too much today about the injury management piece because our goal today is to put in and look at potential strategies that every employer should be looking at what's the best fit for them in order to help their employees stay at work. 
when we look at stay at work strategies, these include, you know, several different strategies that we're going to briefly talk about today. That includes functional employment testing, you know, hiring the right people from the very beginning, educational programs, and I'll go into more detail about that, about the information and the education we provide our employees. Then there's ergonomics from a standpoint of removing risk factors from the workplace themselves and other strategies that couple with early symptom intervention. So we look at a lot of times we look at our ability to stop a strain or a minor injury or a minor complaint from becoming a workers' comp claim. So we reduce the number of OSHA recordables and so forth. These are among some of the primary drivers that we're going to be looking at our strategies in order for us to reduce and prevent these types of incidents in the workplace. So we do focus on like, you know, really point out what are we trying to prevent? And we are trying to prevent accidents and traumas to our workforce. So these can be caused by force exertion injuries. In other words, somebody trying to lift, carry, push, or pull amount of weight that's basically too much for them to comfortably or safely manage or handle. Repetitive motions, one of the largest and costliest time of injuries are injuries related to these repetitive motions. It also has a much higher number of days away from work related to these types of injuries as well, so it can be very costly. And then just cumulative trauma disorders, which is that buildup over time of strains and sprains and micro injuries over a long period of time that really lead into those overuse types of conditions. So as we're trying to do is look at these types of injuries, these occupational type injuries, and really understand how the stress is applied to the body and what we're doing to help alleviate those stresses. And because every one of us is very individual, every our bodies are made differently, the age of our bodies is differently, the makeup of our bodies is different, these stresses impact every individual employee differently. But understanding exactly what our risk factors are is extremely important. So from an educational point, every employer should have a good idea of what an ergonomic risk factor is. Whether you have safety specialists in the workplace that are constantly looking for these types of risk factors that have a background and have a training in what, are, what a potential risk factor is, or a smaller employer that doesn't have the luxury of having a dedicated safety person inside. Every employer should really be well informed of exactly what those risk factors are, which are defined by, you know, many regulated areas like OSHA, NIOSH, and so forth that have come out and identified what these risk factors are. So primarily, the number one risk factor we look at in the workplace, repetitive motions, for instance. Repetitive motions, doing an activity numerous times throughout the course of a minute an hour, a day, whether it's a week, month, or a year, you know, if we look at the amount of repetition somebody does, so whether that's as easy as, you know, gripping, squeezing, lifting, typing, or keyboarding, whatever that repetitive motion is, is going to provide a certain level of risk. The next one we look at many times is forceful exertions. Forceful exertions being any time the body has to provide amount of force, whether it's pushing or pulling or lifting, Squeezing, gripping, or pinching, all of these forced exertions can multiply the risk factor and be a potential for injury. Awkward postures. Anytime we take an awkward posture, which is sometimes not easy to recognize for the layperson, but for the, the ergonomic professional or somebody that's been trained in ergonomics, biomechanics, we kind of look at anything where our elbows are away from our body, our shoulder, our hands are above the height of our shoulders. Obviously, the most recognizable is when we're bending or stooping or twisting. All of those are awkward postures. 
but it does also include kneeling, crawling, climbing. A lot of these different activities require an awkward posture in order to successfully complete them. And being knowledgeable that those things increase the amount of potential for risk on the human body is very important. And other things go into it, inadequate rest, environmental factors such as vibrations, cold, heat, all of those areas can add stresses to the body. And then most importantly, understanding that it's not always one specific risk factor, but a combination of risk factors. So if we have a combination of not only repetitive motions and we also add that being done in an awkward posture, it gravely increases the amount of risk. Conversely, by identifying those risk factors and being able to control maybe just one portion of those risks by decreasing the, maybe it's the posture, maybe decreasing the repetition, or perhaps the force, we can greatly decrease the risk factors as well when it comes to what that person is capable of doing. And then we have to factor in the personal factors. You know, like I mentioned earlier, everybody's different. Our age, our gender, our size, whether we're, you know, tall, wide, you know, all those things are going to have an impact, not only ergonomically, but when we look at the stress factors that are put on our bodies. And then we have other types of comorbidities or pre-existing conditions, whether it might be obesity, diabetes, thyroid disease, all of those things have an individual implication and change how our body's able to tolerate some of those stressful risk factors as we're performing our daily duties and jobs. And not only in the workplace, but also what we're doing at home or maybe a second job or in other types of activities like that. So those cumulative risk factors are extremely important to help identify and identify those risk factors in a very concrete, objective way that we're able to break down job tasks and look at the tasks our employees are being asked to do, and then identify or associate the specific risk factors involved with each of those tasks. And that is one of the primary and fundamental steps towards coming up with a great solution on how to reduce those potential risk factors, therefore reducing the chance of injury. So when we start looking at overall strategies for injury prevention, we really look at a few that are primary that we see a lot of employers out there using today. And like I mentioned earlier, the first one is employment testing programs. We'll talk a little bit about that. We'll talk a little bit more about education programs because that's such a wide scope. Ergonomic solutions is another area where we focus on removing the risk factor and sometimes the most economic and the most practical is that ergonomic solution. And then using things like education coupled with wellness and early symptom intervention. You know, having a stopgap measure before somebody goes into an emergency room setting because of a slight strain, sprain, or a slight bit of discomfort can be a great way to help decrease some of those potential recorded injuries and workers' comp claims themselves. So backing up a little bit, let's talk a little bit about employment testing. So employment testing, the goal here is, first of all, having a selection process from your pool of individuals you're hiring from, from the very first day, is to select employees or workers that are going to be put into a situation where, first of all, they have the physical capability of meeting the physical requirements of the job. So that you know if you have a medium or heavy job where lifting might require anywhere between 50 to 100 pounds, that somebody has the physical nature and the physical capability, first of all, to safely complete that task before you put them in a situation where by performing that task is definitely going to lead to an injury. So we have people that are able to first move the materials that are required to do the job. 
And these materials or these tasks are considered to be essential to the job, essential to the functional uh, requirements. So if it's moving product, lifting product, carrying product of whatever, whatever nature that might be, again, the individual has the physical capacity not only to manage but safely control the weight and move it from the expected location from point A to point B. They also have the, the physical capability of meeting any postural requirements. So maybe it's climbing, kneeling, crawling, reaching overhead, gaining a posture, working at floor level or below knee level, all of these areas. Employment testing allows you to determine as you're providing employees to your workplace is on day one, you know those individuals are capable of meeting that job. Thanks for providing that background, Stephen. So let's get right into the questions. First off, is post-offer testing legal? That's a great question, and it comes up quite often, and many employers have taken approach to that where they, they've heard in the news and they've seen in news reports, you know, issues with the EEOC or the ADA where we've had complications or people have been doing things inappropriately or incorrectly, which may have led to some type of disparity in their hiring practices. So employment testing itself is not illegal. It is something that actually can be used very correctly and can be used widely in order to safely place employees into the proper environment. There are, however, very fundamental points that every employer that's looking at doing employment testing should look at and be very well aware of. And we always recommend from a standpoint of always looking to your, your legal resources, legal counsel to make sure that as you implement an employment testing program, which not only includes, you know, and Mike, what we're talking about today with functional employment testing, but things like background checks, drug testing, other types of testing you might do during an HR hiring process. When we look at this, we have to make sure that those processes of testing are validated. In other words, your test criteria, the criteria that you're judging those applicants to truly does represent the job. It is an essential function of the job and is tested in an unbiased way. So there's very fundamental things that we do have to do during employment testing to ensure it's valid and legally defensible. So the answer to the question is yes, it's very legal to do, but there are legal implications that have to be taken into consideration. Another area we go into as far as a strategy for injury prevention is our education programs. And education programs really do focus on a wide variety of different topics and areas. But educational programs are there to train the employees, also not only to actively take responsibility for their own safety, which is very important, but it's also important to engage with your employees to make them aware of potential risks to doing their job. So maybe this is proper lifting, and, and probably everyone on this uh, call today has heard about the proper way to lift a box from the floor, you know, nice wide base of support, staggered stance, keep the box close to your core as possible, use your hips and knees to bend, and use them as primary drivers to lift that box from the floor. Avoid lifting with your upper extremity and your back, and, and for instances, to decrease those injuries. And we've all heard those types of things but more so even focused on whether it's a prevention program aimed at decreasing slips, trips, and falls. It's an education program to there to focus on the proper use of a piece of equipment or machinery to decrease those risks. Education on hearing protection, education on eye protection, education 
follows a wide gamut of different areas and strategies and has to be provided to our employees. So we use a lot of those examples of education programs. Also going into educational programs is things like stretching programs. You know, we hear a lot about stretch and flex or, or today we call really strengthening and conditioning types of programs where we really want to help employees prepare for the activities that they're doing every single day, not relying on their warm up to be part of their job. We want them to go into their job. And as we look at employees as industrial athletes, we want them warmed up, prepared, and ready to do the tasks as they enter into the workplace. And they go into that scenario. So whether it's lifting, carrying, pushing, or pulling, or doing repetitive types of motions or activities, we want them to be physically prepared. And we do know that the literature and everything does point to by having that person warmed up and educated about the proper use of stretching, exercise, conditioning, that we can promote a healthier lifestyle and reduce those injuries in the workplace. What do you have to say to employers that have tried education programs and found no change or differences? Another great question. Another great question. So we do hear this a lot from our employers when we propose types of programs. So whether it's education on body mechanics and education towards a stretch and flex program, we hear a lot of employers say, oh, we've done that. We've done it multiple times. We've spent a fortune on these types of programs, and it's not really shown any success. And so we kind of go back and we look at the proper way to instill programs because we do believe in every environment, every employer has different needs. The tasks are different. So we can't ever use a cookie cutter approach. It can't be one size fits all. And we see that in a lot of programs that have been instilled into a lot of employers. They're not customized to the task at hand and they're not shown to be truly practical in the utilization. So like just one simple, for instance, if I'm in a like a warehouse environment and maybe it's not the cleanest of environment, you know, the floors are a little bit dingy or dirty. The last thing I want is a program that's going to require somebody to lay down on the floor and do a stretch. They're not going to want to do that. Also, having buy-in from the employees themselves, being part of the understanding what the risk factors are, and then the prob- probable solutions. And making you know associations to them that truly do make sense of the why behind the reason we're asking or providing these types of programs. And lastly, the most important thing we need is supervisor, manager, buy-in. Every indication out there, well, we're talking about return to work from injury or job satisfaction has to do with the employee's relationship with their direct supervisor or upper management. And if they don't feel they're part of that, they're part of that solution, and they're con- they are truly committed to that solution from an upper management standpoint, we definitely see a lack of success in those programs. So having that ability to have those discussions of whether a, a manager is part of that stretching or is it something that's just handed down as to the employees to provide for themselves or something. A recent study I read, if a if a supervisor or manager is just involved with 25% of a prevention program from an ed- educational standpoint, the success rate is much significantly more improved than if they're not there at all. So having that opportunity to discuss with employers how they implement education programs is extremely, extremely important. We move on into ergonomic programs as being another controlling factor when it comes to risk mitigation. Ergonomics has been around for, for, for a very long time. 
And a lot of people have the idea that ergonomics just means cost. It's expensive tools. It's expensive whether it's chairs and desks and, and set up for the, the office employee, or if it's in the warehouse developing specialized tools and equipment that would be very costly. And really, that's the furthest from the truth. The, the goal of ergonomics is to try to make the environment fit each individual employee. Yes, some things are, are having control over their workstations with maybe it's height adjustability, width adjustability, making tools that are designed for the workstation. Yes, they definitely can and, and, uh, identify those. But there's also administrative controls. You know, when we start looking at risk factors, not only from a standpoint of what the risks are, if we've identified those risks, not only can we look at from a physical ergonomic standpoint or an engineering standpoint, we can also look at from an administrative standpoint. And then we also talk more, which we're going to talk a little bit more about the behavioral side of it. So all of these areas of ergonomics, the principle is to, again, identify that risk factor and then come up with a solution, either through behavioral education or training, ergonomic controls, engineering controls per se, or administrative controls to reduce those risk factors. So if it's an awkward posture, if it's a forceful lift, if it's repetition, ergonomics goes a long way to help remove that risk factor overall. So we want to be able to encourage in companies to look at implementing, you know, cost-effective measures that can impact a large amount of people and really focus on driving down those risk factors. So when we start looking at the different ways of controlling risk, we've mentioned, you know, first of all, hiring employees that are physically capable of doing the job. We've also talked about principles that around educating our workforce about what risk factors are and what they can do to help prevent some of those risk factors from impacting their everyday well-being. And then the ergonomic piece goes into simply removing the risk factor, which many times is the most effective way to decrease those risk factors in the workplace. So when we start looking at the next option, and that's our early symptom intervention piece, when we start really looking at from an injury perspective reason is, you know, when we're out there in the workforce and we're engaging with employees and we're really trying to promote early reporting of any type of symptom, and having a really progressive and aggressive plan for early symptom intervention. OSHA outlines for us, and I'm not going to get into too much detail about what OSHA allows us. Those are very easy to find and look up. What we can do for first aid, and many times it's that utilization of OSHA-appropriate first aid that allows us to intervene with that employee, find out what's going on, find out what's causing the discomfort, maybe it's, you know, where they were doing something repetitively, maybe it was an awkward posture, maybe whatever stress it was caused by, but really finding out, you know, that taking that opportunity to kind of talk to the employee, find out what's going on, and take them through that first aid process. And whether you're doing this self as an employer or providing these solutions on site, or you're using a vendor that comes on site and does these for you, or you have virtual connectivity to maybe it's a therapist or an athletic trainer or potentially a nurse that's providing this opportunity for us to provide this level of first aid. But what this allows you to do as an employer is take control very early on in the stages of a potentially developing workplace injury and see at what level does it of reaction is needed. And sometimes there is. We, we provide this type of service to many employees or through their employers, 
And we look at this, we assess them, and we say, this is really appropriate, it needs to go straight to the occupational medicine facility. They need to go to Ahmed, they need to go see the doctor and be further triaged and diagnosed. Or many times, we're able to manage and take these types of minor incidents and control them at this point where they never result in a work comp claim, nor do they result in an OSHA recordable. And these are some driving factors behind some very progressive and very effective ways to decrease your overall exposure to those risks. Not only does it have a bottom line effect as far as reducing workers' comp and recordable events, it also provides a level of understanding and communication to your employees. They're being taken care of, they're being heard, and they're being provided every possible means to prevent them from having entering the workplace. So coupling that with an ESI event and what we focus on anytime we have the opportunity to interact with a you know an incident of any type is that behavioral modification. Or we call it job coaching many times. You might have heard that, where we're really looking at you know, modifying an individual's behavior. You know, I mentioned earlier education. We all know in the back of our heads the proper way to lift. Again, mentioning wide base of support, staggered stance, keep that item close to you, bend at the hips and knees, keeping your back in a more upright posture. We know that, but we see it day in and day out. We don't always follow what we practice. And that's where that job coaching comes in. So whether it's material handling, whether it's the awkward posture we're in, maybe it's just dealing with the environment we're in from a, you know, working on wellness and education piece. A lot of those things go into that behavioral modification. When we look at, again, those behavioral modifications, identifying risk factors, using ergonomics to, to adjust them from a physical standpoint, an administrative standpoint, implementing education programs like stretching, not just stretching. I really focus more on strength and conditioning as it is in today. We really want to focus on what's going to prepare that individual, warm them up, allow them to do their job every single day with less likelihood of becoming injured. And communication. This just trickles into the wellness and the understanding and really the focus is on our employees, making sure that they understand that they have access to this kind of knowledge and expertise to help them do their jobs every day, day in and day out, with a less chance of an injury in the workplace. How do you measure the success of your programs? Another great question, because that's really at the end of the day, each employer, you know, has to report up, you know, <laughs> their everyone they answer to is, you know, what are the costs of these programs? And yes, I mean, there definitely is cost to any of these, whether you're doing employment testing, you're doing education programs, you have on-site assistance, or you're doing early symptom intervention, there's definitely a cost. And the cost there needs to be defined in both leading and lagging indicators. You know, our lagging indicators are many times our most easiest ones to focus on. When we start looking at injury rates, severity of claims cost, we're working with our uh, workers' comp provider and we're looking at the number of injuries we have, the cost of those injuries, the direct cost versus the indirect cost. All those things can be measured and should be measured on an ongoing basis. So we can project, we know, you know, what we look at on average, we have so many injuries or recordables per year. On, on average, we have so many of those injuries that are lost time. So we know how many we have as far as the severity aspect goes and the overall cost of our claims, our OSHA recordables, all the events we have from an, even if it's early symptom intervention program that we have, or all those lagging indicators that an employer should be looking at, should be monitoring 
And with any effective program that involves any of these activities, we should see a downward trend in all of these lagging indicators. Also important is our leading indicators. Things that we, oh, other things we can do proactively prior to there being an incident. So engaging with our employees, using things that tools, for instance, discomfort surveys. Yes, asking those questions. How do you feel? And documenting it. Are they having discomfort with their jobs? Identifying the, what those risk factors are and how they're impacting that individual. Behavioral audits, being out in the workplace, looking at how the employees are doing their jobs and identifying new, safe, safer ways to do those activities. Participation stats, are they participating in strength and conditioning programs? Are they participating in wellness programs? Are they participating in wellness opportunities when we teach and educate individuals, again, about some of those personal risk factors, whether it's diabetes, obesity, smoking, those things are definitely going to have an impact on that individual's ability to tolerate the activities in the workplace. So all of those things are leading indicators that we can track and you should be tracking and monitoring on a regular basis in order to focus on exactly what is the return on investment that you're seeing when it comes to many the use of these programs, whether you choose one strategy or a combination of strategies in order to drive your injury rates down. What would you say is the one most productive technique to reduce injuries? Oh, another great question. And many people might have different responses for that because depending on your type of employment, what you do, your employment pool, you know, some of these strategies may be, be very successful for you. Some of these strategies may not be so successful for you. But I do feel that one of the most important things that any employer can do out there revolves around what we call a functional work task analysis and also risk analysis that goes with it. Identifying the job you're hiring people to do. In other words, really having it documented. And I know many people might think, well, I have a job description. How detailed is your job description? If your job description on the physical side basically says, must be able to lift 50 pounds. Well, that doesn't tell me, is it 50 pounds from the floor? Is it 50 pounds overhead? How much is required to push or pull? How often does somebody have to lift 50 pounds? There's a lot of questions that go into that. So having a true comprehensive job analysis and a risk analysis uh, coupled with that will help you as an employer define, first of all, what is the job I'm asking my employees to do? How much is lifted? How much is carried, pushed, pulled? How frequently are they doing those activities? What positional tolerances are being asked of them? Stooping, kneeling, climbing, crawling, gripping, squeezing, any of those activities can be documented and recorded where we really do understand what the true requirement of the job is. And then we also look at the requirements of when we start looking at those risk factors. And that's where the risk analysis comes into place. Which of these jobs do have a lot of repetition, a lot of forceful requirements, a lot of activities in awkward postures or exposure to environmental conditions? And then we can start to associate potential strategies. By having a good essential functions list and a functional job description or job analysis as we refer to them, it helps the employer in many ways. That is the cornerstone of possibly developing an employment testing program. It is the cornerstone of a true progressive injury prevention program 
if we know what the risk factors are, I mean, we can select which strategy might work the best. Is it employment testing? Is it education that includes strength and conditioning programs? Is it something from an ergonomic standpoint that we're able to remove risk factors? Not only does it help with these strategies, but every employer should also look at how progressive is their return to work program or policy and what does it look like? How aggressively does an employer try to get the employee post-injury once an injury may occur back into the workplace? And again, that functional job description will help greatly the medical provider, the nurse case manager, look at how quickly we can get somebody back into the workplace. It helps people like myself as a treating clinician, as an occupational therapist and physical therapist out there, identify and exactly know what the job requires and how to get somebody back to that physical capability as soon as possible. And also provide information back to the medical side. Maybe they're not at the full potential of meeting the job requirement, but where are they? Are they at 50%, 70%? And that allows the treating physician to apply work restrictions that are truly in line with the functional capability of the employee. So again, going back to those functional measures, identifying the job itself and the risk factors associated, in my opinion, is the number one thing an employer can do to help prevent injuries in the workplace. We have reached the end of our podcast. Thanks to our speaker and all of our listeners. Please visit the Prima website to hear other Prima podcasts, view upcoming Prima webinars, read Prima blogs, and learn about other Prima educational resources. Be sure to check us out on Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, and our very own Prima Talk. Have an amazing day.